We're uh, in Hebrews 12 today. I know I said we were going to be in Hebrews 11, but concerning the chapter break between 11 and 12, the great Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says, there should be no chapter division here, since 12, 1 through 3 really is the climax of the whole argument. As you may know, biblical chapters and verse breaks weren't added to the Bible until some 1,500 years after Christ. They are immensely helpful in finding what you're looking for, chapter and verse. But sometimes they artificially break the author's train of thought. And that's the case here in chapter 11's long litany of faith heroes. It doesn't end in chapter 11. It ends in chapter 12 with the greatest faith hero, Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith. I suspect that the author of Hebrews, if he were alive today, would probably read the sports pages and have the ESPN app on his phone. So in verse 1, he uses a sports image to illustrate his point. Just as the Apostle Paul, who undoubtedly would be an Ohio State Buckeyes fan, by the way, often did in his letter. So we want to read that, Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 3. If I lost any of you right there, come back, okay? (laughs) That was not the point of the message. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary And lose heart. The first word in chapter 12, rendered therefore in most English versions, is not one that's normally translated that way. It's an unusual three part compound word that is extremely emphatic. It ties this sentence to the preceding paragraph, which is why I said chapter 11 doesn't end in chapter 11, it goes on through chapter 12. A paraphrase like, because of all of this, and since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, would convey the idea. The phrase surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses puts us on the field in a sports arena and puts chapter 11's faith heroes in the stands around us. They've already competed, and now they're watching and rooting for us. Imagine you're pitching your first varsity high school baseball game. And you learn that members of the 1984 Tigers World Series teams are in the stands watching. Imagine further that they're all rooting for you. They want you to win. That's how the author pictures the situation of these Hebrew Christians. They are in the fight of their lives. They're trying to remain true to Jesus Christ and to each other, and it's hard. They're worn out. The opposition is formidable. They want the coach to send in a reliever. Coach, I'm, I got nothing left. But there's nobody in the bullpen to take their place. They have to hang tough. They have to give it their all. Abraham, who's been through the same thing and stayed true, is watching. 
So is Isaac and Jacob. So are Moses and Rahab and Gideon and Samuel and David. These people didn't fold when things got tough. They held on to God. And God held on to them. From the stands, they're shouting, keep going. Don't give up. You can do it. Now, I use baseball as an illustration, but the first readers of Hebrews would likely have thought of a race. They would have imagined the last leg of a long, grueling contest. They're rounding the turn. Their opponents are at their heels. Every bone in their body is crying out, just quit. They want to collapse. They want to give up. But the people in the stands are cheering them on. Abraham shouting, you can do it. Isaac adds, don't let us down. Moses and Gideon say, do it for the team. Do it for the captain. The people in the stands, the faith heroes from chapter 11, are not merely witnesses, this great cloud of witnesses, are not merely our witnesses. They are witnesses of God's good, faithful support. They know God will help those who are striving to be faithful because he helped them. They know it would be a terrible mistake to give up. Don't give up. But we will give up or collapse. Whatever our intentions, if we're carrying unnecessary weight. And so our author says in verse 1, let's throw off everything that hinders. A literal translation might go, laying aside every weight. Now, it's possible that the picture here is of a runner in the games who's done all his training with weights strapped to his, his legs and wrists. People did that back then, like, just like they do now. But on the day of the race, he needs to lay those aside. He needs to give it everything he has. But the author might have had something else in mind. When competitors in the Greek games ran or competed, they did so naked. They wanted no extra weight. They wanted no loose Greek clothing whipped by the wind to wrap around them. Our word gymnasium is actually a Greek word that means train naked. And you let your kids go to gym class, don't you? (laughs) They're going to get a little permission slip to skip gym from now on. Whether it's weights or whether it's clothing, the idea is that there are things in the race of your life, in the race that is your life, that can slow you down and hurt your chances. The weight our author has in mind is anything that keeps you from giving your best for Christ, that wears you down and diminishes your ability to persevere. So what is it in your life that wears you out and makes you want to quit? And I'm not thinking about the hurdles in your path. I'm not thinking about people or about finances or about employment or about illness, but about the weights that you carry. What are the attitudes that cause you to lose heart? What are the beliefs that weigh you down? What are the habits of mind and body that slow you up and wear you out? Let me give you an example. Maybe you grew up believing you had to be right about everything or you'd get into some kind of trouble. So you became a perfectionist. But no matter how hard you try, you can't be perfect at everything, or even at most things. That attitude causes you to overwork, 
causes you stress, to be anxious, keeps you awake at night, it wearies you in the day. You're running the race, but you're running it with a 10-pound weight strapped to you. Or maybe you're not like that at all. You, you, you love to have fun. That's a good thing, right? But you resist taking responsibility because it isn't fun. And if it isn't fun, you don't want to do it. So instead of learning to like what you do, you try to do only what you like. But that's caused problems at work, at home, and in following Jesus. You're easily distracted. You give up on things before you should. See, you're also running the race with a 10-pound weight strapped to you. And that's just two examples of a nearly endless number of weights that Jesus' follower might be carrying. But the weight the author has in mind might be more than an attitude or a mindset or a habit. It might be sin. It's possible to translate the Greek epijak, epi, I can't even say the word, epaxegetically. Now, let me, that's a, like a $2 word. Let me tell you what it means. It means that the second part of the sentence, if, if that's the case, explains what's meant by the first part of the sentence. So if we're to take it that way, we would translate, let us throw off everything that hinders even the sin that so easily entangles. Whether that's what the author had in mind or not, any attitude, mindset, or habit that hinders us from loving God and neighbor, even if it's not sinful in itself, is going to lead to sin. It would be wise for each of us to periodically ask God and maybe one or two people whom we trust if he or they see things in us that are holding us back in our pursuit of God and making it hard for us to love. What is it that you see in me that's preventing me from giving God my best? We need to be that transparent with each other, or at least with a few people. Sin will always hold us back. It'll always make life hard. There's no such thing as a harmless sin. I've heard people talk as if their sins no longer matter, or that they don't matter very much. That's usually the case. They don't matter very much because God in his grace has forgiven them. That's like saying driving off a cliff isn't so bad because I have power steering in my car. When we minimize the seriousness of sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And we do damage to ourselves. How do people minimize sin? Oh, we do it in lots of ways. We say things like, well, I'm only human. As if that excused sin. We say, what I did doesn't compare to what he did to me. Or I'm no worse than anybody else. Or I know it's not right, but at least it's understandable. And then there's the guy who says, well, I know what I did was wrong, but it was so unexpected. It took me off guard. I didn't have time to think. C.S. Lewis once said, surely what a man does when he's taken off guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. You know, I think the worst thing we do to minimize sin, we perform theological gymnastics that contort the scriptures in a way that makes sin seem unimportant. I've heard people do it many times. But I wouldn't want to be the one saying those things to the Apostle Paul. He would say to me what he did say about people who were saying similar things in his day. Your condemnation is deserved. St. Jude calls such people godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immortality. 
and in so doing, deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. The grace of God does not teach me that it's understandable to say yes to sin. It teaches me rather to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's what grace does. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. If your theology makes it easier for you to sin, your theology is heretical. One of the best habits any Christian can get into is to absolutely refuse to make light of sin, especially in his or her own life. No excuses, no justifications. Conversely, making light of sin is one of the worst habits a follower of Jesus can get into. Arthur describes sin as a thing that easily entangles or encircles. Sin wraps around you and trips you up. And the longer it goes on, the worse it gets. It starts to wrap around your thoughts, your relationships, your hopes, your theology. One of the most dangerous things that sin does is make it hard to trust God. You need to trust God to persevere. And sin makes it hard for you to trust God. It's psychologically impossible, or at least improbable, to trust someone while you're sinning against him. That's not the way we work. It's not the way we're made. Sin and unbelief, they get along just fine. But sin and faith do not. That's why in chapter 3, the author warns, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Sinful lives have unbelieving hearts. As we saw in the last couple weeks in chapter 11, we need faith to persevere. We're not going to persevere without faith. But sin and faith, they can't coexist for long. The more comfortable with sin we grow, the less capable of trusting God we become. And the more capable we are of trusting God, the less comfortable with sin we become. We won't persevere in the race marked out for us apart from faith. So it's no wonder the author urges us to get rid of the sins that wrap around us and cause faith to stumble. The phrase translated the race marked out for us in the NIV is something of a poetic play on words. The author has just said that a crowd of witnesses surrounds us. That's perikamenon in Greek. And now he says that there's a race set before us. That's prokamenon. There are witnesses around us and a race before us, and it's time to run. We're not sitting in the stands. We have a race to run. But watch where you're going while you run. Maria Runyon ran for the U.S. in the 2000 Summer Olympics in Sydney. And she finished the 1,500 meters in eighth place, three, three seconds behind the medalists. Now, that might not sound very impressive, but the thing is, Maria is legally blind. All she can see when they take off is a fuzzy blob of runners in front of her. When she gets down to the end of the race, reaches that final turn, and the runners have spread out, she has the most trouble because they're no longer a fuzzy blob And she's racing towards a finish line that she can't see. If you're going to run the race set before you, you need to see where you're going. But how do you know where you're going, right? This person's following Jesus to the mission field. And that one's following Jesus to the factory. And this Jesus follower is headed 
into the medical field and that one to the classroom. The race marked out for us leads to different places. That's true. But it leads always to the same person. Jesus. The key is to keep your eyes on him. The Greek word that's used here is is comprised of an infrequently used present active participle, which has the idea of doing something and continuing to do it. Look at Jesus, our author says. Fix your eyes on him, is how the NIV and the old King James Version put it. Keep him in view. Don't let him out of sight. Doing so will increase your faith. Jesus is the greatest faith hero ever. He's the author and the finisher of the faith, as the King James translated. The NIV 84 calls him the author and perfecter of the faith. The NIV 2011 calls him the pioneer and perfecter of the faith. The first of those words is used to describe someone who founded a city, who led an army, or who led a group into new territory, which is why the NIV opted for pioneer. And understand what that means. It means that Jesus has already been where we need to go. He has tracked through the wild countries. He's faced opposition and endured trouble. He's felt lonely and betrayed. He's been tempted in every way, just as we are. He's been pulled this way and pulled that way by people's needs, then by enemy schemes, and finally by soldiers who stretched one arm to the right and the other to the left and nailed them in place. Yet he finished the race. But how does a person fix his or her eyes on Jesus? Can't see him physically. So what is this about? The Greek reads literally, looking away to faith's pioneer and perfecter, Jesus. We have to look away from some things in order to look to him. So let me ask you an important question. And and think through this. It'll tell you a lot about yourself. Where does your mind's eye go by default? When it's not on something else, where does it return? Is it to your reputation? Then every time your mind's eye returns to what people are thinking about you, cause it to go again to Jesus. Is it to some future pleasure? Every time it goes there, cause it to go again to Jesus. Don't just try to stop that. Oh, I don't want to worry about what people think about me. Use it. Use it to turn to Jesus. Think of him. Focus on him. Does your mind's eye go to some future trouble? Is that the default position? Trouble's coming? Then every time it goes there, cause it to go again to Jesus. And verse 3 helps us understand what that means, what fixing your eyes on Jesus entails. It says, consider him. Or this is emphatic in Greek, the way it's constructed. So maybe you could even translate this, by all means, consider him. Think about him, what he's done and how he did it. How he trusted God God in the garden of gloom and on the cross of shame. Think of how he stayed true to God and how God proved true to him. 
Consider him and what you owe him and what he wants from you and don't stop running the race. If you forget to look to him, you're in trouble. Now, you can be running the race, but there's always the danger of getting distracted and forgetting to look to Jesus. I read recently that reports of injuries to distracted walkers are up. Cases in the last seven years have more than quadrupled in emergency rooms of people who come in who have been injured while they were walking and were distracted. So they're walking along, either trying to use their cell phone or some electronic device, and they forget to look where they're going. And what the experts say is the number's really higher than we know because many people are embarrassed to say how they walked into the door or how they fell off the curb. So here's some examples. 24-year-old woman, emergency room, walked into a telephone pole while she was texting. 28-year-old man fell into a ditch while he's on his cell phone. 12-year-old boy crossing the street while playing a video game, clipped by a truck. A bicyclist walking, uh, bicyclist talking on his cell phone runs into a 62-year-old pedestrian. And this one might be the best of all. California man's texting his boss, probably telling him I'll be late for work, when he looks up and he strolled right into the path of a 400-pound black bear. Now, We can get distracted. Trying to run the race without looking at Jesus is like trying to drive a car without looking at the road. So what is it that takes your eyes off of Jesus? Again and again. You know, it takes my eyes off the road when I'm in my car. You know, I'm going to admit this publicly. I'm trying to get a CD out of the CD case while I'm driving. I don't text and drive, don't talk and drive, but I do get CDs out. And uh, sometimes I take too long looking for that CD instead of looking at the road. What is it that takes your eyes off Jesus for too long? Is it a career or a relationship or a grievance, an illness, a loss? You can't run the race while you're looking at those things. You'll get off the track, you'll fall into the ditch, you'll run into a bear. Now, I'm not saying you can ignore them entirely, but don't look too long before you look back to Jesus. Have you looked at Jesus? When was the last time? All right, process this right now. When was the last time that you really considered him who endured such opposition from sinful men? You really thought through. Your mind's eye went to him. When did you last read his story? Or meditate on his words? Or admire his wisdom and his strength and his love? When was the last time you looked at Jesus to see if you're going in the right direction? Or to learn what he wants from you? If it's been a while, that could explain why you've gone off track. Or why you're having a hard time trusting God. All right, one last thing. We run this race before us, but we don't run it alone. We run it with brothers and sisters. 
some of whom, this is the end of verse 3, have grown weary and are about to lose heart. They haven't been looking at Jesus. They've lost sight of the finish line, and they need help. They need our help. The last phrase of verse 3 could be literally translated, that your souls might not become weary and collapse or come undone. You know, people's souls can come undone. They can collapse. I know in a group our size that some of us are on the point of collapse. We don't feel like we can go any further. If you're in that place, look to Jesus. And if you see one of your brothers or sisters on the point of collapse, you need to give that person aid. Last Sunday, there was a high-profile triathlon race down in Cozumel in Mexico. And it's been all over the news, so maybe you've seen it. Olympic medalist Johnny Brownlee of Britain. He had a wide lead with less than a half mile to go. And suddenly he slowed down and he began wobbling and staggering and looking dazed. Well, I'm going to show it to you. Can we get that video up? Look at him. This is the guy who's in the lead. See, they're way back behind him. He's dehydrated. He hardly knows where he is right now. This is his brother fighting for second place. He stops and lets somebody else win the race, and he grabs his brother, and he basically drags him across the finish line. You'll see some Brit trying to get Johnny to grab the flag, which is you know, traditional. He can't. And then when he goes by, he keeps looking back because he's not sure what's just happened. And his brother pushes him into second place and then crosses the line. On any given day, while we're running the race set before us, we may encounter our brother or our sister staggering, dazed, and ready to collapse. And we need to come to their aid, put an arm around them, and help. What did our author already tell us? He told us, consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. See, when we collapse, love and good deeds go out the window. Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together as some in their habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. The finish line is coming. And some of us are having trouble getting there, and we need each other, and we need to look to Jesus. All right, let's pray. God, you know, you know where some of us are at, that we are spiritually dehydrated. We're wobbling and dazed and in trouble. I pray you'll send help from Zion.
in the form of a brother or a sister. I pray that you'll help us find the finish line again. Look to Jesus. Lord, for the one of us who's sitting out here today and is just ready, so tired and ready to give up, I pray for grace and strength and the ability to be open about it. I pray that you'll work some miraculous things to your glory in and through your people. For Jesus' sake, amen.